Welcome to the Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, for regular listeners, you know I like to take on complicated subjects and Try to make it clear what's at stake for all of us. Uh, well, hold on to your seats. Today's episode takes on one of the most complicated and contentious areas of economic policy, international trade. International trade negotiations are incredibly complex, multi-level games, negotiations not just with America's trading partners, but with Congress, domestic constituencies, rival factions within the executive branch, and there are sharp, almost, almost theological differences in how trade policy ought to work. And today, we find ourselves in a position where our most important trading partner, China, has essentially revealed itself to be our mortal enemy. To break all this down, I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Lighthizer, our U.S. Trade Representative in the Trump administration, for more than 40, 40 years, Bob Lighthizer has litigated, negotiated, and editorialized against the policies of one-sided free trade deals, first in the administration as deputy trade rep and as a private lawyer. Uh, as President Trump's U.S. trade rep, he fought, uh, fought against globalists. This is, a, this is a noble list of enemies, by the way. Globalists, importers, lobbyists, foreign governments, and big business whose interests sharply diverge from those of American workers and American security. Now Bob's published a book, No Trade is Free, uh, that uh, for anyone interested in understanding the realities of international economic policymaking, this is the book. Uh, it's part memoir, fascinating stories, part history, and part, uh, part policy analysis. He lays out in detail what he sees as, a, as the objectives of a practical approach to trade policy. Uh, Bob's views on this subject have been incredibly consistent since the late 1990s when he editorialized against granting China admission into the World Trade Organization. At the time, he was a lonely voice in the wilderness. Now, his views are mainstream. Bob? Well, Bill, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Terrific book. Uh, well, let's start at the beginning. You've been involved in the trade wars forever. You started in, uh, w when did you first get involved in this? Was this when, when you went into the Reagan administration or what's your? So, uh, you know, what's the beginning? When I was, uh, you know, I got out of law school. I went to a, a great law firm and practiced law for a few years. And then I went up and was the Republican staff director of the Senate Finance Committee when Senator Robert Dole was the chairman. So. This is the end of 78, beginning of 79. In 79, uh, uh, we had the second to the last great trade round. We had one after that. We had the Uruguay round after. That was called the Tokyo round. And a lot of the laws that we'll talk about were written during that time in those, in those uh, the implementing legislation of that, of that uh, Tokyo round. So... Now, we mostly did um, taxes in the Finance Committee. We, we did um, Social Security and a variety of things. But, but that was the, big, the first big taste I had of, of international trade policy. And it was, uh, as I say, there's only been uh, two rounds done in the last, uh, gosh almighty, 50 years. And that was one of the two. So that would have been my first taste of trade. Well, one of the key... One of the things about trade that I didn't appreciate fully, and I think most people don't, is that when the country was founded, the founding fathers were very interested on tra in trade and protecting American manufacturers and protecting American uh, interests. And, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things they, they, they spelled out from the very beginning is the need to protect our interests against uh, the mercantilists, if you will, from abroad. We, of course, we did have a little revolution against England for that uh, reason. What what what's the history here? So 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 you can make a reasonable case that one of the principal causes of the American Revolution was trade. 
um, what, what, what Great Britain tried to do with its colonies was do all the manufacturing at home and use the colonies to supply raw material. And then they tried to keep the colonies, us and others, from buying from other people, right? So they, they, they set up their regulation really to try to get, to try to make money off the colonies. That's, that's what, their, what, what their objective was. And then you look at things, the Stamp Act, and the, the, the Stamp Act was a way to raise money. Before that, they, they, they used tariffs and a whole variety of ways to try to raise money that began the fer, ferment that became the American Revolution. So um, for sure, mercantilism was the, was the policy, and for sure, it had a negative effect on America. And then that, uh, that and other things metastasized into the American Revolution. So, so, so that's true. And then the other sort of interesting thing is there's this sort of view that, that the, the great American economy kind of grew up out of this free enterprise without government in, involvement, without policies to protect it. And, and once again, that is totally untrue, too. They, there is something, when we get past the revolution, we can come back to that if you want, but when we get packed, past the revolution, there was something that was called the American system. And it was Henry Clay, and I talk about all this in the book. It was Henry Clay came up with it, and the notion really was to do what was necessary, um, what was necessary to build up American industry. The, 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 the absolute root of it was in the Federalist Papers and Alexander Hamilton. And the notion was you're going you're gonna to have tariffs, you're going to have subsidies where appropriate, and you're going to build up American manufacturing. Otherwise, we're not going to be a great country. Um, so that goes on and on. There's a policy. There's a bit of a discussion you know, between the various political parties, the Democrats being maybe an agriculture party and against that notion, um, and then the various precursors to the Republican Party being in favor of it. So then you sort of fast forward to, and, and, and by the way, a lot of elections were, were, were fought over one thing, that is tariffs. I mean, a lot of elections, that was the number one issue. I'm well, the South, the South was uh, agricultural primarily, and they imported or they purchased machines, that sort of thing, and so they wanted no imports on, ex, on imports from uh, they, they, they don't want abroad. any tariffs. They, they, they basically were exporting raw materials. They were the perfect colonists. And as we developed manufacturing in the North, then, then the Northerners wanted some tariffs to get some kind of a protection so they could build up their own, mm -hmm. their own industrial capacity. And that went back and forth and up and down. There's a, you know, a million stories that could be told about it. But, but by the time you get to Lincoln and the Republican Party, and remember the Republican Party really started originally as an anti-slave party, but it sort of morphed into a business party after slavery. Lincoln was was a, a a huge fan of Henry Clay and the American system. He he was just a, a, you know overtly a, a fan of his, and that is the notion of building up American manufacturing and using using tariffs and and where appropriate subsidies. Uh, and then that more or less continues, and we find ourselves in 1890 with the biggest economy in the world as a result of that system. Um, and then you look at every Republican president up to Eisenhower, which is 12, every one of them agreed with that system. Every one of them was in favor of using tariffs. So, and then the other thing, the other part of the myth um, that I like to, to prick is this notion that all these industries were, uh, uh, um, uh, became successful without any government involvement or subsidies. And if you look at the great American industries, very many of them. Now, we have to be careful of subsidies as conservatives and, subsidies and as market-oriented people because subsidies can be a real problem. But if you look at the railroad industry, there would be no railroads without subsidies, right? They gave massive amounts of land. Um, if you look at steel, we had, we had uh, huge tariffs to protect the steel industry. The, the, the basic industries that built up in America built up with with um, the protection of, uh, or at least at least manufacturing, the protection of tariffs, and 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 not infrequently with the advantage of of, of subsidies. So the the book, your book, changed my mind about a couple of things. I was already mostly there, but there's this notion among us. I call myself a bit of a recovering libertarian, and that the you know radical free trade, unilateral free trade, was the way to go, and the way America really 
built itself was through entrepreneurial individual efforts, people building businesses, no government, no government support, no subsidies, no tariffs, anything like that. And then, and then along came progressive government in the 20th century, and then all the government support and subsidies and and inter engaging in, in uh, partnerships with the private sector came about. You're saying that, that wasn't true. I mean, we had a private sector that was doing all the work, but government was protecting them. So, so what I'm saying, it was true and it wasn't true, right? Because clearly we had less government intervention. And, and I mean, my personal philosophy is for lower taxes on business, individual taxes is a, like a moral decision you make yourself, but lower taxes on business to make business competitive so that workers have jobs and make more money. So, and I'm also an anti-regulation guy to the extent the regulations aren't justified, right? In other words, you have to have some regulation. So there's an element of, of what people believe to be true. But, but if you look at the great robber barons, the Carnegie's and the, all these people, they all built up their, their fortunes with a combination of protection and what any rational person would say a violation of, of what are now antitrust laws, right? In other words, there, there's a kind of bleak side to all of this. But, but uh, the notion that it was sort of, you know, rugged individualism and no government, and that's how we got all this, is, is uh, really not a truthful position. There are a lot of people for whom that's true and a lot for whom it's not true. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's, let's fast forward to when you stepped into the picture. One of the things that we, we had... We had NAFTA, which was uh, the negotiation with Mexico and Canada, and, and, and that, that agreement uh, caused a lot of pain in terms of losing manufacturing jobs in America. And then we, you've got an extensive uh, section on the book about how we fix that and how you fix that, and, and uh, that's, that's uh, extremely interesting. Uh, then we've also got the World Trade Organization, and... China being allowed to enter into the World Trade Organization. What was that? Nineteen? It was two thousand that that happened. That's, so what, what, what's what's the history of the last you know last thirty forty years and how do, how do we get to where we are now and what did you do with Trump so, when he came in? So uh, you, you know that's like the fundamental question. It certainly isn't my position that the trade policy forever of the United States was bad. Many people would say there was like a break with the Second World War, right? The United States was the only real economy in the world, and we did a variety of things to try to defeat communism uh, and to rebuild Europe, but also Japan, right, and most of the world. And we had a trade policy where we reduced barriers, and we had a number of trade rounds, a succession of trade rounds. And, and, and you can make a case that that went reasonably well. Some were good, some were bad. We made a lot of mistakes, but we made a lot of smart moves too. And the U.S. economy grew, and that was all fine. Then we find ourselves in the 1990s, really, and now there's a shift, right? Now there's a shift. It, it, I would say it kind of goes back to the hubris of, of the end of the Cold War and the coming down of the wall, and there was this sort of sense in the 90s that, that you heard the term in one of the books was called the end of history. And it was like, it was like, um, you know, that now history going forward would always be about the, the sort of American ideals. And this was a notion that was popular even among people who were smart, maybe most popular among people who were very smart, right? Sort of elitist picked it up. Smart, smart in an academic sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, but it was something you can see how it would appeal to the kind of intellectual types that were in the Clinton administration. Right, those kind of people, um, and so they did things, and it wasn't entirely just him, but they did three things that that changed the whole game, and I call it sort of the trifecta of stupid. Um, first, they did uh, NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. So just to remind people, in '88 we had an agreement with Canada that made sense, that uh, was largely a Reagan administration uh, free trade agreement, and then there was a pressure to add Mexico in, uh, and since, you know, that this was, uh, you know, we were all wise and didn't see the downside of anything, uh, that went forward first in Herbert Walker Bush, and then it was picked up by, and, and finished and passed by Clinton. And then the second thing um, was this, uh, this uh, Uruguay round that I referred to, which 
made a lot of mistakes, but also created the WTO. So we had a, a predecessor to the WTO called the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. And we can talk about all that. It's, it's interesting, but it may not be as interesting as some other parts of the book. But, um, but, but we kind of codified it and changed it and called it the World Trade Organization. And, it, and we gave it sort of legislative powers. Part of what its mandate we created through law was to make it like a Supreme Court for economic stuff, which, which was a very foolish idea. Uh, you know, the notion would be that a member of the Communist Party of China will sit in judgment over economic policy and not reflect the interests of the Communist Party of China. But so kind of, and the same thing could be true of somebody from from uh, Europe or from South America. So the whole notion was a, was a, was a bad one, and I point out in there it was very bad consequences. So that's the second thing. There. And then the third thing was this thing called permanent normal trade relations, which which is with China, and basically... Up till that moment, giving the, the notion of most favored nation was the term that would be used. And it means that I'm going to treat you, X country, the same as I treat all other countries. That's the notion of most favored nation. And it's one of the two bedrocks of the trading system, uh, the other being national achievement, which we can talk about. But, but, but Clinton, uh, who, who, who one of the articles I'll point out had received Chinese money, but set that aside for a second, talk about separate Clinton and a variety of Republicans wanted to grant this MFN, this most favored nation treatment to, to, to communist China. And they realized it was going to be unpopular and hard to do. So they changed the name from most favored nation because they say, how can we give most favored nation to the communists to PNTR? It's sort of a, you know, a, a, a fraud. But these are the three things we did. We did this FTA, uh, with Mexico, but we could say with Canada and Mexico, we, we did the Uruguay round, which the WTO, and we let China in. And the result was the loss of some five or six million jobs. And we found ourselves since then with relatively stagnant economic growth, with some good moments, but relatively, and stagnant wages across the board. This is the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Bob Lighthizer, who was uh, President Trump's U.S. trade representative and we're talking about his book, uh, No Trade is Free, uh, which is a very pragmatic and I think uh, thorough book about what works in trade policy and what does not. And we're talking about a lot of things we did in the United States around 19, between 1990 and 2000 that reversed a lot of good common sense we've had throughout our history and, and sort of brought us to where we are now, where we've got incredible pressures on uh, on the, on the middle class and uh, a hollering out of manufacturing. And we need, we're going to get to how that all happened and how we're going to fix it. Bob, the, the thing that's uh, striking is just how dramatic the change was. I mean, as I think about it, we had post-World War II America, we had 45, 50% of world GDP. Germany was destroyed. Japan was destroyed. So we took this paternalistic globalist attitude. It was smart. The Marshall Plan, let's rebuild those countries. We'll bring them into the world economy. And, we'll, and it, was a, it was a great decision. And we acted as the hegemon, really, during that whole period. And, and I think developed a hubris that, uh, that led to the trade blunders that you're talking about. We somehow thought, well, we did this with Germany, Japan. We fixed, uh, we fixed their economies. Now we're going to bring China into the... Uh, into the world organization. And then we're also going to, you know, Mex little Mexico and, and, uh, and Canada, we want to, we want to help those people. And so with, with, with NAFTA, as I read your book, we essentially, you know, what would Ross Perot say, the giant sucking sound, you know, we passed NAFTA and then within a year we've lost how many a million, two million manufacturing jobs to China or to, uh, to Mexico. Well, I, so so for sure, Ross Perot was right. Uh, also, by the way, if it wasn't for Ross Perot, we wouldn't have Bill Clinton to start with because he was the, well, he I'm was not the doing difference. Problems. But that's a kind of a slightly <laughs> different conversation, but it's worth knowing. But, but Ross Perot was for sure right about his prediction uh, about the giant sucking sound. And another thing that happened soon after NAFTA was there was a devaluation of the currency, the, of the, the Mexican peso, and that also changed the economics. Um, but but the, the, the real, 
the, the real problem began probably a few years later when the when the when the Mexican government realized the best thing for them to do was to try to lure officially lure U.S. businesses down, particularly U.S. auto companies. And when they started building the auto plants down there, now we're fast forwarding a few years. Um, that's when you saw the real destruction of the U.S. economy and the and the and the trade balance go down. And that's one of the things that we fixed in the, the U.S. MCA, United States Mexico Canada Agreement. And the China piece, the, the World Trade Organization, it was 2000. We let them in. It was the early two. It was. We had the vote in 2000. So 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 I'll just say this. This this was in an article that I wrote in, in I think 97. There was all this so-called Chinese money. Remember, I was involved in the '96 campaign as a Robert Dole person, right? Um, there was there was uh, supposedly Indonesian money that had gone into the into the Clinton campaign, and what I wrote in my article was that this was not Indonesian money at all. These were all Chinese characters, and I said that that China was making a contribution. Remember, now in '92 when Clinton first ran, he was he was kind of a uh, an anti-China guy, but he had sort of changed. Um, so, so I said that this was really China money, and then I said, what does China want? What's the payoff? And the payoff, I said, for sure, is that they want most favored nation treatment, and then they want to get in the WTO. And I said, if they do, there won't be an American manufacturing job that is safe. So fast forward um, to... 2000, Clinton is literally still putting furniture into his truck to leave, and one of the last. Well, I thought they were putting China into Hillary's car. <laughs> Could be that too. One uh, one of their last official acts, one of his last official acts, was to push through. By the way, with Republican support, too much Republican support, pushed through this what they call PNTR, this MFN for China, Motivation. and that changed everything. And within two, within five years, we'd gone from 19 million manufacturing jobs to 12 million. So it, there's a lot going on, but for sure that's true. And the trade deficit, you know, went from from I don't know what it was, say 20 billion to 120 billion in a couple of years, and now it's 380 billion. Yeah. And 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 there's a loophole that we can talk about that I talk about a little bit in there where they don't actually collect the data properly. So it might be closer to five hundred billion dollars that we're giving China in trade deficits every year. And it all goes back to this pivotal point, this point where we gave them uh, uh, PNTR and people would tell me, well, Bob, it was unpredictable that it was going to happen. And my reaction always is, well, I predicted it. It was that it was that obvious to me that that was what, what was did you happen. see? Well, in the first place, what was China going to do? So we, we can go through the history of China. Interesting, one little interesting tidbit. I had a, a brief history of China chapter, which my editor decided, um, he, he said, people aren't going to want to listen, aren't going to want to read history in a book like this. Well, yeah, the uh, censure of humiliation, you covered things yeah, yeah. like that. So yeah, we go, okay. we go, we, we've I, done a lot of shows on China. I do, so a, little can, bit, I do a little bit about you, that You can assume here. we know something but, about but, it. But, but China had had all their problems. It was clear that what they were going to do was to use a protected home market, the classic mercantilist uh, uh, strategy, combined with the fact that they were going to be able to have very cheap labor, right, and and maintain it cheap because they would, you know, uh, control labor rights. Um, and and that so here's what was going to happen. I I, I figured it is what did happen. American businesses were afraid to move their plants to China because the way the law existed before MFN, every year, China still got the low tariffs, but every year there could be a vote to take those tariffs away. So if you're going to make a billion-dollar investment in a country, are you going to put it in China where the next year your entire investment, that is to say manufacturing in China, sell into the U.S. The next year, you could lose all of it. So what PNTR did is it said, we're giving it to you permanently. Before PNTR, China had the, basis, the, the, the benefit of these low tariffs, but every year there was a mechanism that could be taken away. So there was no certainty, so American businesses would not move their plants. So the first big step wasn't 
China doing particularly anything. It was China luring large U.S. companies who then put their plants there. And the first wave of job losses was American companies moving there because now they knew they had the benefit of low tariffs into the U.S. for their manufacturing. And so you'd move to the smallest little bit of a margin, and that's what, that's what started. Then after that, China created a, 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 an ecosystem and learned about the subsidies and started doing all the other things that made it go from being an enormous problem to being a cataclysmic one. Tell me about the private sector in China. So it is, it is my position that there is no private sector in China. I, 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 based on the work I've done, I agree. Yeah, I mean, so. I, look, I don't talk to a single sensible person, let me say a single sensible uninvested in China person, who has that experience. It doesn't tell me, look, it, you make money as long as they want you to make it, they being the Communist Party of China, and you make as much as they want you to make it. And when you're not net benefiting them, you're out. And we have all these clever American businessmen who think, oh, I'm making money in China. You're just part of what they're doing. You're being allowed to make you're money. You're being allowed. And, yeah. and, and the purpose is you're transferring know-how, you're transferring technology, <clears throat> and, and, and you're helping their ecosystem to get more, more business. And then you'll see after a period of time, you won't be useful anymore. And at that point, you'll find yourself with a Chinese competitor who's not only taken over your entire market in China, but it's now threatening your market in the United States. Well, we're fast forwarding a bit, but this is all good. These last three or four decades are going to blend together a little bit. There's this notion of private sector in China. I just don't think it exists because now the Communist Party has put its representatives on the boards of almost all the companies, whether they're state-owned enterprises or middle market companies, certainly the tech companies and anything strategically related to defense has the party officially on the board, but then they've got all the unofficial the communist cells in there. It's sort of the same thing the Soviets did, where you've got a political officer in there to make sure you're uh, behaving and uh, thinking and behaving in the correct way. So so I agree with you completely. There's, there's this notion of state-owned enterprises and the private sector. And what I say, the, the division is state-owned enterprises and state-controlled enterprises. And that includes U.S. companies. U.S. companies, do you think it's... Not a surprise that if a U.S. company, I give some examples in here where a CEO will say something that could be interpreted as critical to China, and all of a sudden his business has a problem. Even U.S. companies operating in China, mostly through joint ventures, every one of them is controlled by the Communist Party of China. There, and I, don't, I don't mean their activities here, but their activities in China are all controlled. There is no private sector at all. And to put a to really drive this home, I mean, I, I, I've talked with a lot of people who are academics or write books or they've got policy, they're in a policy think tank. You've been in China. You've sat at the table with President Xi. You've dealt with all their senior trade representatives and everybody else in government in the course of your, what, 30 years of doing this. And so this is not just some speculation. This is firsthand based on what you've seen them do and how they act. Yeah, there's no question. So if you think about their economic history and recent you, would, you have Deng Xiaoping, who people who came up after Mao and people thought was like an opener and more of a free market kind of a guy. That was a complete, a complete misunderstanding. What he was is one who said, we want to hide our power and bide our time. And now and we've abide. evolved yeah. to the last couple of presidents, particularly Xi Jinping, who are saying, we're big enough. We don't have to bite up. We don't have to bite our time anymore. And we're certainly not going to hide our power. We're going to show our power. So there was this kind of notion that there was some free enterprise. There never really was. It was freer than state-owned, but it wasn't free in any way that Americans or European would relate to it. So when you were trade rep, what what was the what were the major things you did with China? Well. I know we did the tariff, but I, so, again, this so, is, so, so, as so I said at the outset, this is one of the most complicated areas of economic uh, analysis I've ever experienced. I, I mean, I agree it's, with that. It's not, and this, it's, and this is so not many, simple stuff. There's so many facets to it, and there's so much, um, you know, history, but also kind of technical aspects. It's, it's, it's very much like the tax code in that there's all this relationship to all these various uh, sections. But um, so, so what was our policy? 
if you ask me why did I go into the administration, um, obviously I'm a, a fan of Donald Trump, and he's talked and thought like I have for a long time and, and does it on an instinctual basis. And when I say a long time, I mean since he was maybe 35, so a long time. Um, and I've kind of followed him and admired him. But on a, for substance, it was to take on China. My, my objective in going in was to change what I thought was a very, very bad system, one that was, that was hurting America, and it was one where you had a combination of workers who were in small businesses that I'm interested in helping them, uh, literally having stagnant wages and losing jobs and all of this, and, 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 uh, and it was the biggest single reason was the Communist Party of China and their actions. So what we did were, well, I mean, I did everything I could, right, um, across the board. One, we continued to bring some WTO cases, and we won some, as had our predecessors, but nothing ever happened. That's another story, but the whole WTO thing is a, is, is a, uh, the litigation part of it has not been helpful for America. But, um, and, and we challenged them in a variety of ways. But the big thing we did was in August of 2017, the president signed a proclamation. And that proclamation said, Lighthizer, you will conduct a Section 301 investigation. And here's where I say it's like the tax code, but we have sections even like we were talking about taxes. What's a Section 301 so what, investigation? So what Section 301 says is, and I'll give you the history of it in a second. But what Section 301 says is that is, if there is an act, policy, or practice of a foreign government that's, that is discriminatory against America or, and is having a negative impact on America, that you can take appropriate action to include putting tariffs on. All right? Now, this was, let me give you a little bit of history because it's sort of interesting. Um, that was about what it said for years. It came into effect in the 70s. But we used it effectively to, to get countries to, to enter into import restraint agreements during the Reagan years. So in the next negotiation, that is to say the one that I told you that Clinton did called the Uruguay Round, in that one, the objective, the, one of the principal objectives of all of our trading partners was to get rid of Section 301, to make it so the president does not have the power to help American companies in this case. And, and Clinton went along with it for the most part and got rid of most of 301. But they left a little tiny sliver of it open. And the way, the way the, the Clinton got rid of it, he, he said, we agree that you have to win a WTO case first before you can use 301. Okay? So all of a sudden, the thing is useless, right? Because you're never going to win these cases, and it takes it forever. But they said they did not address the question of if it's not a WTO violation, this unfair practice. So what we did is we went and found serious, uh, systemic, unfair trade by China, which was not covered by the WTO. And therefore, we still had this legal authority. If we went through the hoops and found what we found, that we could raise the tariffs. And that was the key moment in August. Fast forward seven months later, we come out with a report, which I've even had some free traders tell me it's the best government report they've ever read and it's 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 200 and some odd pages and it documents every you know thousands of pages of when was that published and what was it called so so it would be the 301 report and it came out of march of 2018 okay right and it's a it's a really good document um so after they've read your book we can all we can all read the 301 report <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll name a number of these reports <laughs> it's in the book though we documented what we did on all these things with government yeah. publication and then the thing other thing i did is i had them all bound like books so that they were far more accessible to people um so so um we 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 now have a finding after hearings and investigation of certain unfair activity that's having a dramatic impact on the United States. This is the first time anyone had ever done this. We went after systemic problems, intellectual property theft, forced technology transfer, cyber attacks, and we go right down the whole list. Industrial espionage, investment controls, you know, markets they've closed, exactly. subsidies, the whole list. Yeah, of, the whole uh, list goes horrible. Yeah. 
So, so we, and these are things that are not covered by the WTO. So we have the authority, we believed, and the courts have determined, to raise tariffs across the board. This is the first time anyone had systemically gone after China. Um, the president was very devoted to the idea. I mean, the President Trump was constantly, you know, bothered by the fact that when he would go out and see these, you know, working class people, so many of them were hurt because of what China had done. Really, I mean, you know, communities hollowed out, families broken up, opioids, all this stuff comes out of this loss of jobs, loss of some sense of of dignity that you're a working part of. Well, you know, I, I've got my, my libertarian friends that they, they say, oh, no, Bill, you're all wrong. I mean, we haven't, the economy is doing fine and everybody's been uh, benefiting from, uh, you know, the rising tide. Well, the tide hasn't been rising. And to them, I say, just drive around America. I mean, you grew up in a, in a small town in Ohio. I mean, you look around America, I've, our place out in Virginia, um, you know, the manufacturing jobs that were lost there, they're gone. And those people have got no place else to go. So this was a real impact that hurt millions and millions of people. And, and I think Donald Trump saw that firsthand. And I didn't realize he was he was on this from age 35. Yeah, he was, he was, he was. And the, <laughs> the person that was hurting us then was in China because they were still in the Japan. process of, it was Japan. Yeah. And that's a whole other interesting story. But, and he transferred as I did. Trump I, had to have loved you. I mean, you you know, because he's a he's a little bit he's a good negotiator, detail, detail guy. But as you read the book, I come across thinking this is a guy I want in charge of trade. I mean, you under, I mean, you're going through some of this. You understand the details of this better than anybody I've uh, I've encountered. And you know, kudos, congratulations. I don't know. You must be late at night reading all these uh, arcane. Uh, trade trade agreements. So. Well, one of the things about being old, Bill, is you lived through most of it. And I had the same position. But he, the president said, and I don't know if this is entirely accurate, but he did say, he said on more than one occasion, in public environments, that I always said if I was ever lucky enough to get elected president, I was going to have Bob Lighthizer be my USTR because he's the best trade guy. And, I, and he, he, he made that comment. And, and whenever he made it, I felt good. So... <laughs> He, he um, look at, he was lucky to get me, but I was luckier to get him because he was someone who not only saw it the same way, but who had the, the intestinal fortitude to say, we're going to fix this problem. Well, a lot of the issues be- I mentioned at the asset issues within the administration, I mean, a lot of the issues that you took on, you looked over your shoulder. You didn't have a lot of supporters uh-huh. in the White House. And in Washington, every yeah, big Trump. business, the Chamber yeah. of Commerce, you had all of that stuff. And, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it was, I mean, the, you know, the business roundtable, I mean, they all were spending a gazillion dollars, all funded by the Chinese, to stop what we did in, in the, with China, to stop what we did in, 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 in NAFTA. I mean, it was in constantly lobbying the Congress, lobbying the Congress, trying to figure out well, any way to get us to stop what know, we were doing. We talk about the deep state. I want to divert a little bit into sort of what you're up against when you want to change trade, because we talk about K Street lobbyists. We talk about the, the, the special interest here. It seems like there are thousands, thousands and thousands of lobbyists and special interest groups that all got some, uh, some thing they want to get out of trade. And most none of almost none of it has anything to do with uh, the American family or, or or sort of even American security. No, no, it 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 does not. When you look at the size of this trade deficit, which we can talk about because it's an important point at some point. Look at the size of it. Say last year it was one point two trillion dollars. It's probably more than that because of this. They they don't keep <coughs> records properly. Some U.S. Rich guys got a little piece of every bit of that, right? There's some importer, some banker, some, uh, some, some, uh, you know, somebody's getting rich on that, and and now it's at the expense of the American worker and and the and the American worker's family and the in the middle class and the like. It's at that expense, but the people that get the money don't want to give it up, and they they spend their money and they they fought us. Uh, and and as you know, as you know, in the final analysis, the, the U.S. MCA passed with 90 percent of the Republicans and 90 percent of the Democrats. 
And I had people who, who uh, Democrats who said, I've been in Congress for 40 years and have never voted for a trade agreement. I'm voting for this trade agreement. That's, that's how dramatic the shift was in what that agreement was. Our, you know, our objective, President, President Trump went around, all he talked about was jobs, wages, you know, these blighted communities. That, and those are the people, by the way, that got him elected. And many of those are the same people that got Ronald Reagan elected, you know, so-called Reagan Democrats. And when he got into office, President Trump said, I'm doing it. You know, we are going to change this thing. So, but, but the, this is Bill Walton. So I'm here with Bob Lighthizer, uh, Donald Trump's U.S. trade representative. And we were lucky to have Trump and we were even luckier, I think, to have Bob if, we, if you care about the economic issues and, and, and American jobs. Let's do the big picture. Deficits, trade deficits. There's a whole, every academic in, the, in America tells you trade deficits don't matter. You say they do. So, so this is so important. Why, why do we care about a trade deficit? This is, this is so important. Um, uh, I wrote an article uh, in July of 20, I wrote an article on every one of these things, right? But I wrote an article that was in The Economist in July of 2020, uh, 2021. Um, and, and what this article did, to be honest, is it took an idea that Warren Buffett had written about in 2003, and, and, and he wrote an article, and I kind of updated his article and gave him credit for it, of course, and he sent me a very nice uh, email after he had read it. But what, what we say, so, 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 so what is a trade deficit? Now, our, our position would not be that a trade deficit with X and a surplus with Y, and that's all fine. Or say a, a surplus this year and a deficit next year, okay, fine. What we're talking about is the unique situation, which classical economists would say could not happen, but has happened, and that's decades of deficits of one country of hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. That, that's what we've had. So there's something fundamentally wrong. Everything these economists learned and taught us would say that couldn't happen. There'd be a currency adjustment. Something would happen to balance that out. So what we have done is transfer our wealth overseas. This notion that economists say, and I'm going to divert, so some of the people hopefully won't, they won't change another station. The, the, the economists say that, that trade deficits are just the other side of the capital account that basically we, we pay deficits and then people invest in the United States, and so we're basically even. That's basically the notion. It is nonsense when you run decades of trade deficits over and over again. So what happens to that money? This is really the crucial point. That money, those dollars, basically eventually come back to the United States, and they come back in the form of foreigners, including the Chinese Communist Party, owning America. So they buy they buy our equity, they buy our debt, and they buy our real estate, right? So that's all you can do ultimately with dollars. So you ask yourself, how bad is the problem? There's a, an economic statistic called the net investment position of a nation. And this is, the notion is, how much do all Americans own overseas versus how much do all foreigners own in America, right? That's the notion. And you can imagine during all this post-war period that you were talking about, it was a huge positive number. When, when, when Warren Buffett wrote his article, which was a, 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 you know, a genius article, when he wrote that article, the, the, the net investment position in the United States was a negative $2 trillion. Negative $2 trillion. Right now, it's a negative $17 trillion. So $17 trillion, to give you an idea, you could buy most of the 100 biggest companies in America, most of them, and get change. $17 trillion is, is, owned, is, is owned by other people more than what we own overseas. So we are, we are basically, the way I put it, to simplify it, to get back down, we are trading current consumption. We're trading buying T-shirts and, and coats and TV sets for the ownership of our assets, our, our debt, equity, and real estate. That's what we're doing. We are, and so if all you care about is consumption, that's fine. But I tell people if the economists are right and it doesn't matter 
then the richest guy in town is the drunk in the bar who sits there drinking all day long and doesn't produce anything. And we all know he's not the richest guy in town. He's the poorest guy in town. He loses his house, his pension, his car, right? So th the reality is trade deficits only don't matter if you don't care who owns America. Well, the other side of this, and I, 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 I viscerally agree with you, but I'm, I'm, this is not my area of expertise. They're, they're, they're dissing the notion of favorable balance or unfavorable balance of trade because the ultimate goal of all economic activity, including trading with foreigners, is to increase one's ability to consume. See, that seems to be so completely wrong. You, you, you are, you are so right. So, I mean, so that, that's what. So we've got, and, and then on the other side of the consuming, you know, we talk about manufacturing jobs, but my hot button with this is that I think manufacturing is intricately linked linked to uh, the creation of things, goods and services, and and what you learn when you manufacture something is enormously helpful in in innovating the next thing and. To think that you're going to sit in an office and design some, some thing that then gets manufactured over in China, you lose so much intellectual uh, uh, capital by having that having that manufactured someplace else. When I was a banker, one of the first things I got to worry about was I had a big manufacturing company um, base as customers. The instant some one of my manufacturers decided to build their office downtown in Milwaukee and away from the plant in Oshkosh or wherever it was, you knew that they were going to lose touch with their business because they weren't on the factory floor. And so I don't think you can set me on the show. Manufacturing doesn't matter. Well, I think it does. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you completely. So it's not just the jobs. Jobs are important, but it's, it's the but innovation. It's the, it's it's the, the technology. Yeah. So, 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 so there's this debate and I had this debate. And particularly um, if we outsource it to China. Because they're not going to tell us what they've learned. Well, and they're going to take it and create a, you <laughs> okay. know. So, so this the, the notion that you're getting at is, do we not have enough engineers because we don't have enough manufacturing, or do we not have enough manufacturing because we don't have enough engineers? And I had this debate in a Ways and Means hearing. It was when Michael Bloomberg was mayor, so whenever that was, and he took the position that we need more engineers, and I said, no, 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 we need more manufacturing. And, and I have... I, I firmly believe this, and I've called some CEOs, one of whom is quite famous and in the news, and I, and, I, and, and I said, I have a question to ask you. My view is that we need more manufacturing to get engineers, not the other way around, and that the innovation is at the shop level. Right. The technology is that, what that, you're saying. That, that, All of that view. is yeah. where the manufacturing is. Yeah. And, and, and you know, this notion of sort of d designed here and built there that does not work. And this CEO, who's a great man, said, you are completely right. You are completely right. The innovation, the day-to-day -day stuff okay, well, that's is right there on the floor, and that's where the rubber meets the road. So, so your notion is completely right. And plus, manufacturing is important. It pays better. It spins off four or five jobs in the services sector. There's just a lot of reasons why it's important, yeah. but for sure what you're let, saying is Let me is pile on to your argument, though, because when we talk about losing manufacturing jobs, we're also talking about not just income, but we're talking about um, earned success, source of satisfaction from work. And the left has uh, been hostile to the idea of work ever since Karl Marx, who never held a job, by the way, and was living off of Engels' uh, trust fund. Um, and never visited a manufacturing company. I think he sort of set this model for the uh, the modern leftist intellectual. And uh, I, I, I'm digressing, but the point is, people need work. People, everybody needs work. And increasingly, we're we're taking people out of the workforce. Well, we don't need it because you know they're going to have employee, you know, income support systems from government, that sort of thing. We're going to have this. It it hollows out not only your manufacturing but your society. It's destroys the your family. You are so right. I make that point in the book that 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 there is a dignity in work. You can go back to to Saint Benedict, pray and work. You can do you know Leo the Thirteenth who wrote his Rerum Novarum. This look at working is important for people. 
they they it makes their and I I, I talk about it makes their children proud of them, right? It makes them the 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 the, the a contributor to society. Mm-hmm. Who was it who said it might have even been uh, it was one of the one of the saints. I don't know why I'm talking about saints right now, but one of them who said idleness is the enemy of the soul, and that's precisely right. You have to make a contribution. Work is good in and of itself. And that's a very important concept. That's why that creates families and that creates communities. And that's what makes America great. It's the combination of all those communities which are made up of working people in a family, staying together, not going on drugs and being hopeful for their children. That And that is what, that's what we were losing and, and have lost. And that's what that's what Donald Trump was trying to turn around. We we got to stop this. And and by the way, there are some, in 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 many ways, there are. We did turn it around. We did succeed because that view is now very. I think you were well on. Your, you were well in, on your way in the Republicans and the Democratic Party. There there is this notion that it's not. And let's go back as links into what you said a second ago, Bill. You talked about consumption. So economics is the. I'm not going to call it a science, whatever it is, social science, of scarcity. We don't have scarcity now. So they are, their, their science, their ideas are all built around consumption, consumption, optimizing price to maximize consumption. That's the notion. And I'm saying that's exactly wrong. We should be optimizing production. That's what yeah, creates I, 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 I quite agree. You know, the, it's, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> It's not about, and if you think about what is consumption, it's basically materialism. We don't, and 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 materialism is the opposite of values and 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 uh, um, creating families and the like. It's a whole different notion, and and I, you know, it's a combination of sort of economists and people who are basically making money on the scam. Well, you know, it rec- 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 brings to mind a book that George uh, Will wrote uh, many three four decades ago. Called, and the, the the book was really good, but the title really struck me. Stayed forever. Statecraft is soulcraft. And my interpretation—I don't remember exactly what George wrote about it—but was that people, if you think about soulcraft, you're thinking not just about economic efficiency or consumers and and you know what people can can get materially. You're thinking about the you know the health of the culture, the health of society, your health the health healthy people. Health of the family, right? The yeah. family, and and so that so that it drifted completely away from that, and it, in a large part, and we, you know, I guess we can, I don't know where we put our finger on where the source of those bad ideas came from. Probably, probably Yale, I think. <laughs> God, <laughs> you didn't and go to Yale, did God, you? God, <laughs> I did not. God and man at Yale. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, William F. Buckley. Yeah. Sure. I mean, God and was, man at Yale. Uh, you know, so trying to bring us back to where we are, I think the the book, your book, makes a moral case, really, for all this. I mean, there's a practical case, but I think the the underlying tone here is you grew up in a in a in a small town in Ohio, and your your brother um, Jim ended up running the American Battlefield Trust, which was yeah, I think it was fantastic, yeah. and so you're. I'm proud of my brother. I'll take a quick diversion. He has he has both the the Presidential Humanities Medal for his work in conservation, yeah, and a monument near Lee's headquarters about at at, at Gettysburg. And he should, yeah. Well, yeah, and he should. He, he's he's. Uh, but it's it's the values. It's you know the American virtues. The American first. People think that's something is really not. It's about a culture. It's about a way of life, and that's what we're really trying to protect. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and trade was really hurting us, and it has, and it still is. But we we began the process of change, and if we're not careful, it'll go right back because all the forces of money, all the foreign policy people, they are all directed towards let's give some of our wealth to other people, and 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 that notion what it what it reduced to its its base element is we're going to have working people, most of whom do not have a college education, 
drop out of the middle class for some other purpose. And, and that's not right. That's, that's the fundamental wrong. Exactly. And the, you know, the patronizing, the, the elite views that we can go around the world in the State Department and hang pride flags. I mean, we're trying to impose a certain culture on people who do not want it. Uh, we're going to go a little bit longer here because I need to, I need to get to understand something. China, we, there's so many other things we haven't talked about, but China, we are where we are right now. Um, Xi is beginning to, to get very hostile to uh, outside investment. You know, they've got They've kicked all of the security firms out, so you can't do due diligence. They're beginning to crowd people out. The the, the investment banks that thought they were going to do a lot of business in China now finding themselves crowded out of underwriting deals. So the the the, the, circle, the noose is tightening for for investors. Yet we've got what is it? Uh, the beige book for China estimates we've got one and a half two trillion dollars invested in China, and we've got. Forget Nike. We've got you know, we've got uh, all our iPhones are made in a combination of China and Taiwan. We've got China threatening Taiwan. I mean, it seems like we've gotten ourselves into a into a dependent or interrelated position where we're we're, we're really we really have problems and our supply chain, drugs, computer uh, technologies, uh, compu- you know, silicon chips. The whole list of things that you know more about than, than almost anyone, we're vulnerable in all in all those areas. So, so I, I, I of course absolutely agree with you, and and some people would say therefore let's do nothing, and my response is we will be more vulnerable tomorrow. We, we, we can't and more not, the we can't day. we can't do nothing. So so it's, for me it's a two step process. Um, one, do you understand the level to which this is a threat? If, you know, they, they have the biggest army in the world and they're building it up. They're, they have the biggest navy. They're militarizing the South China Sea. They undoubtedly approved the Ukraine invasion. They're, they're not only threatening Taiwan, they're putting their battleships around Japan. Um, they, they, they are, uh, you know, opening uh, bases in, in, in Africa. They're trying to get them in South America. They have this eavesdropping thing with Cuba. We have their, the, 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 the balloon with the technology spying on us. If we have their own words, which words are prepare for the storm, changes not seen in 100 years, which are code for we're taking over, America is in decline, they're done. Our way, the communist Chinese way, that's the way of the future. This is the essence. This is what we're, what we're going to. And, and if you look, has it succeeded for them? For sure, they've gone from having a tiny economy in 2000 of about $1.2 trillion to having a, a $17 or $18 trillion economy now. And almost all of that has been wealth transfer from the United States because during that period, they waged an economic war on us and succeeded, both because we were unaware or we were free trade theologists or we individuals amongst us were bought businesses, influenced, and the like. So, But now it's apparent. Nobody can honestly say that they don't see this problem. So what's the prescription? For me, the prescription is a phased-in strategic decoupling. Not no trade, but balanced trade among some things, uh, putting tariffs on to assure that, and then it's disentangling our technology through a whole variety of steps, uh, and then it's what you just mentioned. It's putting severe restrictions on outgoing investment and ingoing investment. Just one small problem. We have American workers who part of their pension is invested in Chinese companies that they don't even know about and that the people that did the investing don't see the books or have audits of the companies. So, I mean, can you just imagine this? There's some poor guy who works in a factory his whole life. He's got a pension, and there is some element of risk because some fat cat invested in China in a company that we don't know anything about and that the Chinese Communist Party could take away in a minute. So to me, strategic decoupling is what we need. Get the balance back where it was. And, and these people who talk about, well, we have to stabilize the relationship. So let's just spend a second on this, Bill. What does that mean? That means preserving the current trajectory 
So if this is America and this is China, do you want to preserve that trajectory? No, this is not a time for stability. This is a time for us to get them to go like this and us to go like this. This is the time to change the trajectory. And, 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 and if you do strategic decoupling, you will see real additional economic growth. Um, uh, and this is something not in these terms, but it's something that in his policy videos, President Trump has talked about. So it's a, it's a viable thing, and it's something that I hope happens. So that's, that's, that's the promise for the future, but we need to change administrations because there are not a lot of people in this administration, the Biden administration, that want to do that. No. I mean, Catherine Tai seems to be pretty good. She worked for you at uh, as USTR. Well, she was at USTR, but not when I was there. Okay. But she's a friend, and, yeah. and, I, and I admire her. I think she does a good job. Her problem is that she has an administration where the president doesn't agree with her the way that mine did with me and doesn't, wouldn't Joe back Biden her up. Joe Biden doesn't see China as the problem. No, no. I, there's, there's no evidence that for whatever reason, he sees the threat. His own words, he downplays all their aggression. He downplays everything. Nor so does he, Janet Yellen. And, and, and Janet Yellen appears to be sort of caught in, in classical economic analysis. Mm -hmm. and, and, and big business, remember big business, big part of this, big business comes into them and says, oh my God, it'll be a catastrophe. I mean, they said the world would end if we put tariffs on Chinese products, and we did, and we're still here. The world didn't end. But big business is working these people and remember, this is a slight change of conversation, but the Democratic Party is much more the party of big banks and big business than the Republican Party is. Now, right? definitely. Now, now, now. definitely. So, so yes. those people have, all, those tech people and those bankers in New York have a huge amount of influence over this current crowd. But, but, but and then there's this whole question of whether or not the stuff that, that uh, I don't want to get into, but that um, Chairman Comer is looking into. And if, in fact, there was some kind of a payment relationship between the Biden family and, and China, China has all of that evidence, right? Every bit of it China has. So if it exists, that by itself is a reason why you might move in one direction versus another. Without us getting into that, I'm sh I know we, we, share, <laughs> we share common views about that. Uh, one, one last thing, and I guess we do have to wrap up. I hate to do it because, as usual, I've got about 53 hours of stuff I want to talk about with you. Uh, so we are where we are. We've got an election coming up in 2024. Let's let we get a Republican in the White House. I mean, I'm still a Trump guy, and I think he probably he's had on-the-job training. He knows where he can pick up where he left off. So I'm still very much in in that camp. But you, it seems like you would almost have a playbook. You're part of American Policy Institute. You've done some work with them and other people. You would actually know where to pick up where you left off if we had another, if we if we got back into into that job in uh, January of 2025. I mean, what are the first five things you do? Well, I mean, you know, the I do want you to go back into the job. Well, I don't think I there's anybody that. better qualified. I have a lot of good friends <laughs> who are quite generous with my time, but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you know the number one enough thing. Enough golf. I mean, you and I played play some golf. Enough. No more golf. Anyway, can, I, I, and by the way, I didn't play for four years. <laughs> um, so um, the number one thing has to be decoupling with China, just without question. And there's a number of specific steps, many of which I have outlined in the in the chapter on uh, the China prescription. Um, so it'll it'll say those things. If you go to the, to the end where I talk about the way forward, I have a bunch of other additional steps. I think we need to put tariffs in place to get to balanced trade. We talked about um, this problem of the trade deficit, but we can't continue to transfer a trillion dollars of our national wealth, of our children's uh, prosperity, our grandchildren's prosperity to other people around the world. So we have to, we have to right this ship. There's a lot that needs to be done. President Trump, really, really, really changed the whole paradigm. Uh, and now we've had a pause. What we need to do is get back on track and do the kinds of things that he was thinking about doing. Okay, well, let's hope you get a chance to do it. Even, <laughs> whether you go back in or whether you're the, the, uh, the strategic advisor, I, I want to get you back involved. Uh, this has been the Bill Walton Show. I've been here with Bob Lighthizer, who's a great guy, was a U.S. Trade Representative for Donald Trump, who's written a, a a book you really, 
this is a complicated subject, but this is something after you read it, you begin to get a gist. Maybe you don't know it the way Bob knows it, but you can get a feel for where we are, where, where we came from, and where we could go if we wanted to get things right. So I highly recommend you put this on, uh, on your list of things to read. And, you know, if you, if you like this, uh, if you've liked this show, and I hope you did, um, I know some of it was sort of complicated, but it's important that you go through this if you want to really understand what's happening. Um, help us spread the word and uh, leave a review uh, on whichever platform you're watching or listening to the show. Five-star reviews are really good. Bob's got a lot of five-star reviews for his book on Amazon, so uh, you're in good company. And also subscribe, either on Substack or whatever platform you're on, so you won't miss... Uh, won't miss any upcoming episodes. So thanks for joining and hope you've enjoyed this as much as I did. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Bob, thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone, and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining. Mm-hmm.